pleasure to be gathered like this, and, uh, and welcome to those who are newer visitors with us as well. We're really glad that you've joined us, and um, love to connect with you after the service too if we get an opportunity. That would be great. So there was these two fish, and they're swimming, uh, a long young fish, and, um, and they happen to meet an older fish swimming the other direction who nods at the young fish and says, morning boys, how's the water? Two fish keep swimming along for a little while. This is the story where the fish are talking, so just suspend your disbelief about like the incredulity of this whole thing. And they're swimming by for a bit, and, they, and then finally one of them looks over at the other and says, what the heck is water? Um, th- this, is how, this is how the late American novelist David Foster Wallace began his speech to the 2007 graduating class of Kenyon College. The point, now he goes on to make some really significant points throughout his whole talk, But mostly, he wanted these bright-eyed, sort of ambitious, uh, hopeful graduates to recognize that there really is water that they're swimming in. And by that, he means that there are, that we take for granted, uh, deeply ingrained beliefs, assumptions, and practices that are just so much part of our culture that we don't even recognize that, that they're there. It's just to us, it's just the way things are. My hope is that this series, the God Question series, will help us to slow down and notice that we really are swimming in certain waters, that there are many assumptions that we carry with us about, and we think it's just the way things are, but, but we need to unpack those, and we'll do that over this series. One of these assumptions is that there is either little or, or no really good evidence for the existence of God or the truth of Christianity. Like I said, we'll look at a number of these assumptions, but that first one, let me phrase it as this question. Is it reasonable to believe in God? Um, Francis Collins is uh, a brilliant uh, geneticist. He worked on the Human Genome Project. He was the head of that whole thing, which was mapping out um, sort of the the genetic history of humanity. Um, So a huge uh, project. This is a well-respected scholar and scientist. He writes this. Is there a God? That has to be one of the most central and profound questions we as humans ask. Perhaps you've heard someone say that this query cannot really be approached by reason. You just have to have faith is often the response that an earnest seeker receives. But many people down throughout the ages have found this answer to be unsatisfying. Maybe there's some of you that are nodding your heads like, yeah, maybe you've heard that kind of thing before. Maybe you're a seeker and you're, you're wondering, you've got these big God questions, or maybe you've grown up in the church and you have these, you're struggling with some things and the answers that you've heard seem to go like this. You just got to have faith. Now, there was um, a guy writing in the, in the New Testament, uh, one of the Christian leaders, Peter's his name, uh, and he's writing to a group of, of believers um, and, he, and he says these words to them. Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. But do this with gentleness and respect. These are ordinary Christians he's writing to. These are the working poor, basically. And they are told to always be ready to actually give a well-reasoned, thoughtful response when someone asks them, why do you have hope in Jesus, and they're to do it with utter kindness and respect. So notice, um, just have faith, it's actually not a Christian answer. This tells us that. 
Second, uh, for those of you who are Christians um, here this morning, these instructions are directed toward you and I. Uh, like if maybe you're avoiding talking about some of those big, maybe you have friends or coworkers or classmates that ask you these questions and you kind of just backpedal and try to avoid the question. Um, maybe it's because you just feel unequipped or like you're not ready. I hope this series can be an encouragement to you, can show you that there really are some important and reasonable answers that we can give. Uh, but third, gentleness and respect. That is the Christian posture. Anything less or other than that is not a Christian approach at all to dialogue. So now, uh, we need to know right off the bat, to give reason, that doesn't mean that we are going to prove God's existence in a way that could never be doubted. If that were possible, we would all be committed believers, right? There would be no other option. Uh, honest philosophers tell us that we can't prove or disprove the existence of God like in a scientifically verifiable way. So if we're going to talk about reason, we still got to make a decision, is there a God or not? We're going to have to have a reasonable approach. What do I mean by that? I'm going to unpack that a bit more in a few minutes, but basically it means this. When we come up to the God question, it doesn't mean, oh, just check your brain at the door. It doesn't mean, oh, just have faith. Don't worry about your thinking. Your brain's not a part of this. It means something more like this. Belief in God actually makes sense of our world, of what we see and what we experience. Um, there are brilliant, reasonable people around the globe and throughout history who've believed in God, right? And they thought about it. Uh, the ancient Greek philosopher Socrates, he said that the key to a, to a mature and richly rewarding life, both for us, us for individuals and for society, is to follow the argument wherever it leads, unafraid of the consequences. My, my hope is that all of us would just be, be open, wherever you're at in your faith journey right now, that you would be open to looking at, thinking through, assessing the arguments and following through to the conclusions. Because you see, one of the reasons why people stop looking into the God question reasonably is that there are consequences. Like if I come to the conclusion that, that God is real and that he made me to be in relationship with him, that he would be my loving leader, if that's true, but that's going to change everything about my life. It's going to change how I, how I think. It's going to change how I interact with other people. It's going to change my priorities. It's going to change how I go about my business. See, uh, like if you had a judge who was hearing a case and, and she's, she's in, in the stand uh, and, and she's ready uh, to, to judge a case and she, she begins to hear the case and goes, oh, wait, hold on a second. I have an interest in this case. Um, I can't, you know, this will have a bearing on my life. So what will she do? She will have to recuse herself. She'll have to say, I can't try this case. Someone else will have to do it because it has consequences for me. When it comes to the God question, no one can recuse themselves. We all have to make like real decisions about what we believe and there will be consequences. Whether we say, yes, we believe in God or no, we don't. There are consequences. And so sometimes people don't even want to look at the God question because it's scary. It'll change my life if I come to the conclusion that he's there. I've personally had to weigh out these consequences. I've had to think through it. And here's the big point, we all do. We all have to. 
we have to make up our minds at some point. Blaise Pascal, he was a brilliant uh, French physicist, mathematician, philosopher, and during his short life in the uh, 17th century, the 1600s, he says it like this. We know truth not only through our reason, but also through our hearts. What does he mean by that? Think of it. Pascal is, he's this brilliant mathematician. He loves numbers and figures and facts, but he knows that that is not all there is to life or even to knowledge. We respond to the big questions in life, not only through our thinking, but through our loves, through our emotion and intuition, through what we want, essentially. So we're going to look at the reasons for faith in God over the series, but we need to be aware We may want there to be a God for various reasons, or we may not. So my encouragement is to give the God question a real chance, to be brave, to look at the question, even though you know that the answer will have consequences. So let's let's dig in. What kind of reason, what kind of God? Traditionally, it's been thought that believers... um, well, it was, up to, it was up to believers to provide proof for unbelievers about God. After all, we wouldn't believe in the Loch Ness Monster or the Sasquatch unless we had some pretty solid, like, physical proof of their existence, right? But to Christians, and, and people of other faiths too, actually, God is not a being within the material universe. God is outside of that. Believers say that God is being itself. Like God is the ground and source for all other things that exist. Moment by moment, God is holding all things together. But those who don't believe in God think that material objects just kind of, they exist on their own, you might say. So so as we look at that, we can see that actually those who believe in God and those who do not actually see that the world has a very different character in, in, in either place. And that means this. That means as we look at, at, at God, it really de- depends how we define who God is. And for a Christian, I say that God is outside of the material world. So we can't look for proof in the same way that we'd say, oh, prove there's a Sasquatch or the Loch Ness Monster. Uh, Richard Dawkins likes to talk about the flying spaghetti monster. Why can't, we, why can't we prove God in that sense? Because God, we're not talking about a material being in the material universe. Said another way, you can't put God under the microscope and prove or disprove in a laboratory setting. God is not a material object. Instead, uh, philosophers of religion, they, they say that evidence for God should be inferred logically. What does that mean? Well, many theories in science, especially in physics, they're developed this way. Logical inference goes like this. Theory X is more reasonable than theory Y because it explains all of the data better than theory Y does. So that's, that's different than laboratory just looking at some, a material object under the microscope. What we can do with God is we can look at the evidence. We can look at the physical world that we can see and our experience in it, and then we make logical inference about what that says about God. In a similar way, Arguments for God say that the existence of God makes better sense of the data, all of it taken together, than if God doesn't exist. So there's many reasons to believe in God, and we'll look at a number of them over the next weeks, but with the rest of our time today, I want us to look outward, just the existence of the universe to begin with, and then inward, to our sense of justice, and that somehow beauty is meaningful. So first, outward. 
one of the ways that we might think about the existence of God is to look at the existence of the universe itself. Christianity says that all natural things have a cause. Even the Scottish skeptic and philosopher David Hume, he admitted this. He said, I have never asserted such an absurd position that anyone might, anything might arise without a cause. Here's how one writer puts it. Nothing cannot produce something. Everything must come from something that already has being. This means that there must be some unique being that exists without a cause, that did not spring out of nothing, that it is its own cause and the source of everything else. That one being who is being itself is God. Uh, see what Keller is saying here? He said the sort of thing that God is in the Christian understanding is different, distinct from the material world. We're not talking about the natural world when we speak of God, but the supernatural. God is being itself. Now, it's fairly common. It was fairly common for atheists to challenge this idea by just saying the universe has just always existed. It's always been there. Um, that was uh, until 1929 when Edwin Hubble took his 100-foot-long telescope and made what many consider to be the greatest scientific discovery of the 20th century. He discovered that the universe actually had a beginning. Um, astrophysicist Stephen Hawking wrote, almost everyone now believes that the universe and time itself had a beginning at the Big Bang. Again, Francis Collin Collins puts it like this. We have, very solid, we have this very solid conclusion that the universe had an origin, the Big Bang. 15 billion years ago, the universe began with an unimaginably bright flash of energy from an infinitesimally small point. That implies that before that, there was nothing. I can't imagine how nature, in this case the universe, could have created itself. And the very fact that the universe had a beginning implies that someone was able to begin it. And it seems to me that had to be outside of nature. Collins' point, because the universe had a beginning, it must have an unnatural or extra-natural, supernatural cause. The well-known atheist writer Sam Harris, he responded to Collins' book, and he basically said, well, okay, fine, but it's not proof of the existence of the, of the God of the Bible. And you know what? Sam Harris is exactly right. It doesn't prove that the God of the Bible, the awesome, loving, personal God that we find there, it's not proof of that God, but it is very strong evidence, a clue that something or someone stands behind all that exists and that whoever this being is, it's supernatural. We could break it down like this. It's sometimes called the Callum cosmological argument. Don't have to worry about that part, but this is kind of logic. Anything that begins must have a cause. The universe began to exist. Scientists, like I said, point to the Big Bang. Therefore, the universe must have a cause. That's logical inference. But it begs the question, what is that cause? And it strongly suggests a creative force beyond nature. The first words of the Bible say this, in the beginning, yes, there is a beginning, the Bible says, God 
created the heavens and the earth. The Christian faith says there is a beginning and that God being itself created the natural world, the heavens and the earth. There's some responses to this idea though. Like people would say, um, if everything needs a cause, then what caused God? Good question, right? And it is, it really is a good question. And here's what I would say in response. Um, Notice in our definition of God and what needs a cause, we're talking about the natural world, natural things. God is by definition supernatural. He's outside the closed system of material things. So many philosophers and theologians, they also argue that God exists outside of time. That time itself is one of God's good creations. The Bible teaches that, I think, on page one as well. And so who God is doesn't really fit that category of things that need a cause. But second, my response to that issue is this. Um, When we say what caused God, we haven't actually solved the problem of what began the universe. See, if there is no God, then either A, original matter sprang from nothing, or B, original matter has always existed without a cause. In either of those cases, we are well beyond the realm of science. You can't measure that stuff, number one. And number two, we, that's just beyond what we could even know of the universe. So we're still in the realm of the miraculous and supernatural. Tim Keller, he comes to this point, and I think it's worth of our, worth, worthy of our attention. He says this, ironically then, there is an agreement that modern science is completely insufficient to explain the existence of the world. Whatever brought it about must have been something extra natural or supernatural. So even those who think they are denying this argument for supernatural divinity are still supporting it. This material world cannot be all there is to the universe. Again, this isn't conclusive proof for the existence of the holy personal creator God described in the Bible, but it is for many people a strong case that something beyond nature is upholding existence even now. This is powerful reason to believe in God. Um, Albert Camus was a a philosopher. He, He didn't believe in God, but he thought, and so because of that, he thought the universe was just devoid of meaning and purpose. But he feels that this shouldn't be, that the universe ought to make sense, that it ought to have a purpose. So Camus, Camus feels out of, out of sorts, even within his own worldview. He believes there's no purpose to life because without God, there's no purpose giver, that we're just an accident. There really is nothing to say life has meaning, but he feels like it should. It sure seems like it. It's my question for those who maybe are in the same boat as Camus would be this. Why not change your frame? Maybe there's a a way of making sense of this that actually does make more sense, both logically and experientially. For me, it's one of the significant reasons why I'm still a follower of God. I continue to believe in him because I can infer it logically. makes better sense to me that the universe exists, that there would be a creator, but more. As a Christian, I believe that God created the world out of love and for love. That like he made us to receive his love and reciprocate it back to him. That he made us to love others. That's why we exist. And so it means as well that I've got purpose to life. And because I'm made in the image of the creative God, the creator, 
I have creative potential. I get to, to work with my hands in a way that really matters. And it's not all going to burn up with the sun and be insignificant in the end. My work on earth now matters. So for me, this argument gives me both a, a logical sense of, yeah, it makes sense as a creator, but also an experiential and existential reality can mesh together with this. So that's looking outward. Let's turn inward with our last two points here to look at justice and beauty. Uh, you may have heard people complain about young people today, that they are um, moralistically, um, that they're moral relativists, that they think that they can just kind of create their own meaning and that, and that they're amoral. You may have heard people talk like that. Well, I've been working with young adults at university for almost 15 years, both with my peers and now kind of continuing to work with them. And the idea that young people are amoral is just simply not true. Um, some of the most concerned citizens of our world today are in their teens and 20s. They feel passionate about justice, that we as humans have an obligation to care for the environment as good stewards. They care deeply about human rights, about protecting children who are being used as cheap labor in sweatshops, about the evils of sexual slavery, and about the rights of indigenous peoples. But there is a problem with the moral outlook of many today. I recall in my university um, time that the, the consistent argument was that when it came to ethics, what we believe to be right and wrong, um, these are just social constructs. It's that our society decides, based on our values, what we believe is right and wrong, and then we apply that to society. There's no true or objective source for making those decisions. It's just whoever's in power gets to choose what's right and wrong for the moment. Now, as a student, I could see some merit to that idea. Each society does certainly construct their own laws according to their customs and values and beliefs. Certainly, some cultures hold very different values than our, than our culture does. Some think it's okay to subjugate women, to treat them as less than human, to deny them the same, you know, to deny them the rights that men enjoy freely. But I struggled with this, and many of my peers did too. I thought, okay, but my sense of, of morals, if they're just social constructs, if there's no objective, like, transcultural measure for justice, how can we speak about moral evils that are done by other cultures? Like, why would I say it's wrong to subjugate women, to treat them with inequality? Is what I think is wrong or unjust just a product of what my society thinks, or are those things actually wrong? Now, Ard Lindsay uh, is a thinker and author. He writes the following. He says, a believing or a Christian friend of mine took graduate courses under Richard Rorty, a leading postmodern philosopher. In one such class, he met a woman who was uh, Jewish by heritage and was also an atheist and a feminist. Being influenced by Rorty's teaching, she claimed that there were no absolutes. My friend, knowing what she cared about, said, I can prove to you that you believe in absolutes. No, you can't, she said. Yeah, I can. Watch. I'll give you two. Rape and the Holocaust are morally wrong. She thought for a while and said, you're right, those are wrong. But she had no basis on which to hold these values. She believes in moral obligation. There are some things, even that transcend culture, that we can say you should not do that. Could be rape or genocide or many other things. But she has, there's no basis underneath to ground that belief, and that's the challenge. I think we all intuitively sense, have a sense of justice, that there is such a thing as right and wrong. 
that we could actually say about certain things in the, in the world, that is wrong. People should not be treated that way. Like, can we say that the Holocaust was actually evil? Not just that we didn't like it. But if the secular view of the universe is right, that there is no God, and that when we die, we rot, then, well, atheist philosopher Frederick Nietzsche, he is right. He says there could be no moral obligation or humanistic values, values that say humans should be treated as equals and with fairness. For Nietzsche, he points to the existence of God as the basis for Christian virtues. Here's how he puts it. When one gives up Christian belief, that there is a personal loving God is the standard of goodness. One therefore, thereby deprives oneself of the right to Christian morality. For the latter, Christian morality is absolutely not self-evident. And by this, he means that the, the values that Christians hold are there because of their belief about who God is and what God has asked us to be about as humans. He goes on. Christianity, and he's talking about values of egalitarian benevolence and love and compassion, Christianity possesses truth only if God is truth. It stands or falls on belief in God. That's what Nietzsche, an atheist, says. For Nietzsche, the, the logical outworking of his atheism says this, we just have our preferences. Nothing is actually right or wrong. We can never say to someone else, you know what, you shouldn't do that to someone. That's wrong. They could always say in response, who says? And over and over again, the same thing. Who says? Who says? Why believe that all humans are equal, as the Christian stance says? Why treat people as if they were? Many secular people certainly hold these values, and they live them out. Sometimes they live them out even better than their Christian neighbors. But the secular frame, here's my argument, has no basis on which to claim that all people should be treated with equality. I'm not saying people can't be good if they don't believe in God or they can't hold these Christian values. Of course we can. But without God, we can't claim that anyone should be obligated to agree with or support those views. See, they can just say, well, that's your view. I have mine. That is, we have no firm basis to say that is unjust. For me personally, this has been a significant reason why I am still a Christian is because as I've looked at it, as I've thought through it, I have this sense of justice that there really is good and evil in this world. I believe there really is a standard outside of myself, the true who is the good. That's essentially the argument that C.S. Lewis makes in the beginning of his book, Mere Christianity. He starts by describing the fact that if we believe there is evil in the world, we have to have some measure of good, a perfect measure of good by which to judge what is not good. The Bible says of God, God is light, meaning he's holy and pure and perfectly good. God is light and there is no darkness in him at all. So according to the Bible, God is the standard of goodness. Like most people in the Western world today, I firmly believe in human rights. But what Christianity gives me is a firm, objective basis to claim that all human life has value. Because I believe that God made all people in his own image and has endowed every person with this incredible value and dignity, I have good reason to fight for the rights of all people. In fact, I am bound to do that. We read in Micah 6, 8 in the Bible, says, what is good and what does the Lord require of you? To do justly, to love mercy, 
and to walk humbly with your God. Last point, beauty. This may be one of the maybe least powerful arguments in terms of logical inference, but it's for a lot of people really significant. Our sense of the aesthetic, that we're caught up in a sense of awe at the beauty of the natural world, or with maybe the, 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 the way that po the poets put the words together, or the music, how it draws us into a sense of wonder and mystery, that can even be a bit elusive. I think all of that acts together as a signpost that there is more to this life than just the natural. Um, one of my deepest doubts uh, that I've ever had as a Christian came to me when I was uh, taking, taking an upper level psychology course at UNBC. Um, our professor was arguing that any sense of beauty that we experience when in, when in nature was merely a function of what was helpful for our ongoing survival of our ancestors. So natural selection, he proposed, was the reason why I was attracted to lakes and streams and beautiful mountain regions. Why? Ah, because these contained elements that would sustain life. Water is necessary for human survival. These would be good areas for hunting and fishing and gathering as well. And you know what? I wasn't opposed to that idea that these areas that are good for hunting and fishing are actually going to be attractive to me. I'm going to, and confession, I'm an outdoorsman, so I'm always looking for good fishing holes. Uh, so to me, it made sense. Steven Pinker is a Harvard psychologist, and he's a consistently secular thinker, and he proposes that all of our sense of the aesthetic, that we believe something's beautiful, worthy of our attention, that kind of ca captures our hearts and minds, all of that, he says, is just about passing on our genes that helped our, our ancestors survive. All of beauty is nothing more than passing on your genes. But my experience of beauty in the natural world and beyond, this doesn't seem enough to explain it. It doesn't explain to me how a desert, though it doesn't seem to contain anything that really uh, is, is good for human life, or a storm cloud that's coming in the beautiful sky, it doesn't explain to me why those things would just catch my attention as being utterly beautiful and draw me into a sense of awe. They have nothing that's advantageous for, for passing on human genes. See, the problem with this thesis is that we can't reduce all of our sense of aesthetic or beauty down to it's for survival. Even many secular folks, they don't buy that reductionist model. They feel that the music and the beauty, they actually do mean something. Julian Barnes, for example, he finds Mozart's Requiem incredibly moving. It relies on Christian themes and understandings of death, judgment, and the afterlife that Barnes, with his objective reasoning, he's, he's rejected those things. And it's not just the music that he finds moving, but the words, too. He writes, it's one of the haunting hypotheticals for the non-believer. What would it be like if the requiem were true? Do you see what he's saying? His experience confounds his reasoned commitments. Charles Taylor is a Canadian philosopher, teaches out of McGill. Uh, he's also a Christian. Um, and, and he points out the problem here for those who don't believe in God. He says, here's the challenge. Here are the challenges to the unbeliever to find a non-theistic register in which to respond to their experience of beauty without impoverishment. What does he mean without impoverishment? See, for those who don't believe in God, the challenge with our experience of beauty in the world is to make sense of it, to enjoy it without ruining it, ruining the experience. For the committed materialists, those who believe there's nothing but the material world, they have to believe that whatever experience or delight they're having in beauty or the music, whatever they feel, is merely the firing of neurons in their brains. 
It's just a chemical reaction that helped their ancestors find food or avoid being eaten by predators. There is no meaning to what we sense. And so, so for those who are committed naturalists, you have to suspend your beliefs in order to actually enjoy the world. That, to me, doesn't make the best sense of my experiences. Intuitively, we sense that there really is something more, some significance. Here's how C.S. Lewis put it. He says, you can't go on getting very serious pleasure from music if you know and remember that its air of significance is pure illusion, that you like it only because your nervous system is irrationally conditioned to like it. And that's the point I'm trying to show here. You can't get serious pleasure from music without actually having to shut off your brain and stop thinking. So that, to me, isn't actually reasonable. That's less reasonable than the alternative, which is what? The Christian view says that beauty is real and that it's a pointer. It's pointing to the one who is beauty himself, the great source of all that's beautiful. David Skeel argues that beauty has a physical effect on us that ideas alone are ordinarily don't. I mean, there's this admixture of longing and a sense that beauty is not as enduring as it should be. Have you ever felt that? I have. Then he argues that our sense of beauty is real and that it reflects the universe as it ought to be, but in large part is not. He calls this the paradox of beauty. The Christian view says that the beauty around us is real, that the world is good, but it's been corrupted. The beauty paradox is that God didn't intend for it, the world to be filled with ugliness and injustice and people mistreating others and all that causes the stains and that mars our world. The beauty we do see, it points us to God's original design. And the Christian view says that God himself, out of sheer love, God himself the creator became a part of the creation. That's the Christmas story. That God the Son takes on human flesh and blood and becomes one of us. And not only that, the creator allows himself to, un un uh, to undergo anti-creation, experiences death itself. Why? To buy back, to redeem, to restore his good creation to himself. And all who put our trust in him will get to be part of that new creation. And, and then the Bible goes on to say it's the resurrection of Jesus, that he didn't stay dead, is what verifies the reality of new creation. That's what points us in heaven and says, yes, God will make good on his promises. Now, that's the bigger Christian story. We'll talk more about that in weeks to come. But notice, really, uh, what I wanted to drive into here this morning is in the book of Psalms in the Bible we read the heavens declare the glory of God the skies proclaim the work of his hand the Christian view says that the natural world and the beauty of it is actually pointing us to him it says there is a personal being that made us to enjoy beauty to enjoy each other actually to enjoy God himself it tells us that God will one day remove all the ugliness and injustice and restore his creation to what it was meant to be. And we even get to participate now in creating beauty and working for justice. We saw that, that's what the Mexico team was doing, wasn't it? That's what they were about. We get to be part of that. And that, I think, makes better sense of the alternative than the alternative. The famous conductor, Leonard Bernstein, he famously admitted that when he heard great music, he sensed heaven some order behind things. Beethoven, he says, has the real stuff, the goods of heaven, the power to make you feel at the finish something is right in the world. 
I'm gonna invite you now and ask the question, could it be that our experience of beauty really does point us beyond the mere material? And let's take in some Beethoven as we think about that one. Thank you. 
either that means something or it means nothing. Either those people are full of dignity and value and worth and creative potential or they are balls of atoms and they mean nothing ultimately. We do have to reckon with that. We do have to wrestle with that. And as a Christian, I believe that meant something and those people are beautiful and good and that God has loved them and wants to redeem them through Jesus. And that's what my view leads to. I encourage you to think through where your view leads you 